us to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go, also they will accompany me. Amen. And we know God will bless the reading of his word to all our hearts. Over the last number of months, we've been looking at the subject of the church. And we have considered together the organization of the church, the ordinances of the church, the officers of the church... Uh, the orders to the church, and this morning, uh, very mundanely, I want us to consider the offering of the church. There are some Christians who feel that it's wrong ever to preach on such a subject and that money should never be mentioned from uh, the pulpit. I probably tend to that view, but I do think at times the subject needs to be addressed. Samuel Chadwick, the great Methodist preacher at principal of Cliff College, Uh, at one time said, I am persuaded that there is nothing upon which the Christian conscience is so ill-informed as the subject of Christian giving. And it's for that reason that I want to turn to it uh, this morning and uh, deal with this whole subject of Christian giving. Uh, I want you to notice three things. Uh, The reason for giving, the method uh, of giving, and our motive in giving. So first of all, the reason for giving. Why should we give at all? Well, I I think two reasons are given to us in the text. That, first of all, obedience, that God's word uh, commands it, and then uh, fellowship, God's people require it. So first of all, uh, obedience, God's word commands it. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now this is strong language. Paul isn't leaving this up for grabs. He says, you also are to do. Just as the Galatian churches did, you also are to do. He doesn't say, no, I want you to go away and consider the needs. I want you to uh, pray about this particular matter. Uh, here's my prayer card. And uh, if you think I'm worthy of uh, support or this cause is worthy of support, then in an act of spontaneous generosity, respond to those needs. No, he doesn't say that at all. He issues a decree. He gives a command. So you also are to do. Now, I don't have to tell you that Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He tells us himself that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, that it is breathed out by God, that it is the very Word of God. So this command, this decree, this demand issues not simply from the pen of Paul, but from the mouth of God. And it is he who expects us to give uh, consistently and regularly 
to his work. To fail to give to God's work is not only irresponsible and careless, it's active disobedience, sin against God and his word. Indeed, Malachi calls it robbing God. Now, I want you to just turn back to Malachi chapter 3, last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, and just uh, read along with me verses 6 to 11. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. That's encouraging, isn't it? Because he doesn't change. He's faithful and consistent. Uh, We're not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we uh, return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Malachi is calling the people of God to repentance. They had drifted, they had declined, they had departed from God in terms of their spiritual relationship to him. And God says in verse 7, return to me and I will return to you. They needed to repent. And repent means to return and repent means to put right what was wrong. Well, the people asked, how are we to return? What sin have we committed? What have we done that's so wrong? And Malachi says in verse 7, you have robbed God in your tithes and contributions. By failing to give what God had commanded, the people of Israel had stolen from God. How had they turned from God? Well, verse 7, they had turned from his decrees. Now, to be branded a thief and a robber of men is a terrible thing. But to be branded a thief and a robber of God is infinitely more serious. To feel in this duty is to rob God, and robbing God is a terrible crime. Are you robbing God? Are you giving what God requires? Are you giving in a way that God commands? Are you giving to God what is right or what is left? We are to give. God's word commands it. Secondly, God's people require it. Look at verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints. That gives us a clue to why Paul is mentioning here this subject of giving. The fact that he mentions the collection, definite article, indicates that the Corinthians already knew about it. If we go down to verse 3, we see that the collection was specifically for God's people in Jerusalem. I will send those whom you uh, uh, accept by, by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Now, we know from other parts of the New Testament that this collection was made during Paul's third missionary journey to help the believers uh, in Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem had been hit by a very severe famine and many of the Christians there were poor and had little in terms uh, of the things of this world. Added to that, Jerusalem was the epicenter of Jewish persecution and many believers were suffering at their hands. Now it seems from the, the passage that's before us and other passages in the New Testament that Paul had organized a collection among the Gentile churches to give much needed relief to the believers in Jerusalem. If you remember back to Edwin's uh, study in Romans, he mentioned uh, those verses in Romans 15, 25 to 27 that deal with that particular subject. It seems that the Gentile churches responded well. Indeed, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 of the Macedonian believers that they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints, giving, he tells us, beyond their ability. Now, in that giving, these believers were following the scriptural principle of giving first and foremost to the Lord's people. Of course, the church is to exercise charity and generosity to all men. That's the whole point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. But the Christian has a special responsibility to those who share the same faith. In Galatians 6 and verse 10, Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, But then he adds, especially those who are of the household of faith. That the Christian is to do good to everyone, but his special focus and responsibility is those of uh, the household of faith. This collection was an expression of the spiritual unity that exists between all Christians. And in the past, the church has been at the forefront of that kind of relief work. Thomas Bernardo, um, Spurgeon, of course, and uh, Mueller, George Mueller, they were, and, and the founding of the, the orphanages, they were motivated by their Christian principles. Soup kitchens, hospitals, so many of these things trace their origins back to Christian people demonstrating the love of God in a practical way. During the Irish potato famine, there was a little Baptist church in Balana that were at the forefront of bringing relief to all of their neighbours in that situation. Now, of course, that's not the only reason we should give, but it is the reason we should uh, that Paul gives here. We are to think of the spiritual needs uh, of others as well, the uh, needs of of missionaries and uh, of small churches and far from inhospitable places in our world. God has laid down this principle that those who preach the gospel should live off the gospel. But sometimes people in small churches uh, 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 need the support of other churches to help them in that, the whole work of mission. Well, only the Christian will be motivated and moved by the needs of the perishing. You see, I can put it up on the screen Um, photographs of starving children and and we would be all moved by that to respond in sacrificial giving. But I can't put a picture up of a, a child or a man or a woman perishing eternally in hell. Can't do that. 
And, and in common grace, the uh, non-Christian will always be uh, moved by the plight of their fellow human beings and their physical needs. But only the Christian will be moved by the spiritual needs of others. So whether those needs are temporal or spiritual, we have a responsibility to, to give the fellowship of God's people. We support and help one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those whose task it is to preach and declare the gospel. Those are the two reasons for giving. Obedience, God's word commands it, and fellowship, God's people require it. The reason for giving. The second thing I want you to notice is the method of giving. How do we actually give? How should we order our giving? Well, first of all, we should give individually. Look at verse 2. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside. Each of you. That's all inclusive. No Christian is exempted no Christian is excluded. We are all stewards of whatever the Lord has given. doesn't matter if we're at school or retired, employed or unemployed, rich or poor, whether we have a mortgage or no mortgage, whether we have children or no children, every Christian who professes the name of Christ is to give each of you, says Paul. It may be a child tithing their pocket money or a pensioner tithing his pension, but every Christian should give. When the Lord opens the heart, he opens the hand too. And generosity is a, is a, a mark of spiritual life. I was reading uh, recently about somebody who was writing a biography of the Duke of Wellington the great victor at the Battle of Waterloo. And the biographer had discovered some old checkbooks, checkbook stubs of the Duke, and said this. He says, when I, when I saw how he spent his money, I knew the man. When I saw how he spent his money, I knew the man. Isn't that true? Our hobbies, our pleasures, our interests, the kind of things we really value are to be seen in our bank statement. Does your bank statement speak of Jesus? Does it speak of your love and loyalty to Jesus? Every Christian is a giving Christian, or at least ought to be a giving Christian. We should give individually. Secondly, we should give regularly. Look at verse 2. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside. Paul is asking for regular, planned, and systematic giving each week. Uh, a portion of money is to be set aside for the Lord's work. Our giving is not meant to be irregular and spasmodic based on the emotional appeals that we're exposed to or just whatever happens to be in our pocket. Rather, giving is to be a regular, willing, and uh, a grateful commitment to God. In other words, like every other part of the Christian life, we are to be disciplined in our giving. That's one of the advantages of gifted, uh, because it forces you to think about your weekly contribution and, uh, and how much you give. And the plan is set up through direct debit that you give uh, regularly 
to uh, to the church. And of course you get the uh, tax that you've paid on that amount, or the church at least gets that tax uh, back again. If we don't plan our giving, we will never give as adequately as we should. Each week, these Christians had to bring their contributions. So giving is to be individual, regular, and then thirdly, proportionate. Look at verse 2. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set, uh, is to put something aside and store it up uh, as he may prosper so that uh, there will be no collections when I come. Notice that phrase, as he uh, may prosper, as he may prosper. The authorized version as uh, says, in, uh, as God has prospered him. It adds the word God, but that's the thought, that God has been good to us, so we should set a portion aside for him. The NIV translates that, in keeping with his income. In other words, what has been given, uh, what is given, was to be directly proportionate to one's income. Now, it's hard not to conclude when uh, Paul speaks of a proportion uh, of uh, one's income that he's not speaking of the tithe, which, as you know, was 10% of uh, one's income in the Old Testament. The principle of tithing was laid down in Leviticus 27 and verse 30. A tithe of everything from the land, whether from the soil or field, from the trees, fruit from the trees belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Now, I believe the general principle of tithing is a good principle of setting aside 10% of your income for the work of the Lord. Now, people object and say, well, you know, that was part of the Mosaic law, a tax levied by God in a theocratic state equivalent to income tax today. Now, in, in one sense, that is true. But there were different tithes that were levied upon the uh, Israelite, and the average Israelite actually paid 23% of his income to the Lord. But you've got to remember also that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek 430 years before the law was given. So the principle of tithing was in existence before Moses. Moses, if you like, institutionalized it in the law. And here Paul is telling us that our giving is to be proportionate to our income. And I don't think it's unreasonable to think uh, with his Old Testament uh, saturation, that he is thinking of the tithe. Most people who object to tithing uh, object to it because they don't want to give more, but because they want to give less. But when you think about it, uh, 10 wage earners could support a pastor. 20 could support a missionary. 30 could support an assistant pastor. It's a good principle. But it's important to understand that it's not the only principle uh, in Scripture. In the Old Testament, the tithe was regarded as God's by right. It belonged to him. So Malachi speaks about robbing God. Robbing God. Malachi speaks about tithes and contributions or tithes and offerings. So you had your tithe and then you had your offering or your contribution, which was over and above the tithe. 
The tithe was not the ceiling at which you stopped, it was the floor at which you began. You see, there was another principle that is also enshrined in the Old Testament, and that's the principle of sacrifice. David refers to it in 2 Samuel 24. You remember when he wanted to purchase a site for the altar, the owner of that site offered to to, uh, David, knowing the reason why it was uh, being purchased, for nothing. And David responds in verse 24, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. The principle is sacrificial giving. And although the tithe is a good principle, it's not the only principle established in Scripture. There's also this practice, this principle of sacrificial giving uh, to the Lord. That's why Paul commends the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 2. He says, For I testify that they give as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this, this service to the saints. They, they gave beyond their ability. They sacrificed. You see, the truth of the matter is that God doesn't just look at how much we give, but how much we have left. Now, he doesn't want us to be irresponsible. Uh, he, doesn't, he isn't asking for it. Um, an abolition of property and wealth because we know that some of the most godliest uh, servants of God both in the Old and New Testament were wealthy people. But he does expect us to make sacrifices. Now, do you give in that way? Do you tithe? Do you set 10% of your income uh, apart uh, for the Lord? You children... Do you tithe your pocket money? I don't know what the average child gets for pocket money now. What would it be? I'm thinking of inflation. I'm thinking my, of my sixpence that I got when I was uh, seven. But, well, three pound with that. Do you set 30 pence aside for the Lord and for his work? You young people. With your part-time jobs, do you tithe? I was really encouraged a few months ago where one of the young people handed me 20 pounds. And he says, that's for you. He says, that's my time. I didn't take it. Well, I did take it, but I passed it on. I was really encouraged that he was thinking about, about tithing. You, you adults, is giving a, a priority. Do you use that gift aid scheme? You pensioners, do you tithe your pension to the work of God? And more than that, do you give over and above your tithe? Have you ever given until it hurts, gone without something? P.J. McNabb was the pastor of um, Mount Pottinger Tabernacle in Belfast, the church at Edmund, pastored at one time, and... Um, T.J. McNabb from the Tam, and uh, Sam and Mary Sloan were missionaries in South Peru, and uh, Sam cycled everywhere on a on a bicycle. And well, the deacons all got together and they decided they would buy a car for T.J. McNabb. And he said, um, 
Sam Sloan has more need of that car than me in South Korea. And he sold the car and he gave the money to Sam to purchase a car in Peru. That's sacrificial giving. We are to give individually, regularly, proportionately. Fourthly, we are to give centrally. Uh, we are to give through the church. Look again at verse 2. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he prospers so that no collections will be made when I come. Now, of course, the first day of the week was the uh, Sunday, the day the church met for worship. Now, the phrase, storing it up, the authorized version says lay by. I think the NIV is a little misleading. It talks about saving it up. But the the Greek word there is the, the word from which we get our English word, thesaurus, uh, which means a collection of words. And that word was used of uh, Greek temples and Greek shrines in the ancient world that also acted as uh, banks. And you deposited your money at the shrine or the temple and they looked after that money for you. So I, I think what Paul has in mind is not that you're saving it up at home because then there would be no point of them saying that when I come no collections uh, have to be made. But he's saying you bring that money to the church. You you give to the church. You deposited that collection with the church. Every Christian was expected to give to the church. And through the church. And uh, we know that in the New Testament the church had various ministries like looking after widows, supporting uh, missionaries, supporting ministers. And if, if people didn't give through the church, it would be impossible for that to happen. Now, I know that many of us um, support individual good causes that appeal to us personally. We have friends that we know that we support uh, on the mission field. We have works and missionary societies that we have a particular interest in. But our priority should be to give centrally to the church and let the church distribute the money. Every Christian and every church member ought to support his church as his first priority. Stories told of a, a doctor who had um, served a small impoverished French village for many years. On the announcement of his retirement, the village uh, asked all the villagers, it was a wine um, um, producing area, asked all the villagers to bring a pitcher of their own wine uh, from their own cellar, and they would put it in a, a barrel and then give this barrel to the retiring doctor. On the day of his retirement, the doctor was honored with many speeches of lavish praise, and they presented their gift to him. That evening, the doctor decided to sample his gift, and he drew a glass uh, of of the liquid out of the, the barrel and discovered it was only water. That each family had brought a pitcher of water thinking it would go unnoticed when mixed with the barrel of wine. And sometimes in church we think our offering is unneeded or um, uh, if we fail to give it, 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 it'll go unnoticed. But every offering is important. 
the widow's mind is just as crucial as the uh, uh, giving of, of those who are more wealthy. I want to encourage you this morning to give biblically, and to give biblically you should give regularly through the church. That's God's revealed way. So we're to give individually, regularly, proportionately, centrally, and lastly, carefully. Notice the care Paul takes over the administration of this money in verses 3 and 4. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Men selected and approved by the church would carry this money to Jerusalem, not the Apostle Paul. Uh, If it was appropriate, he would accompany them, but he wasn't going to carry this money for them. Paul was meticulously careful not to handle money himself, but men who were appointed and trusted by the church. Now, there's an important lesson for us there. You see, um, when I um, made the point that our, our giving is to be primarily directed through the church, some Christians might object and say, well, I, I wouldn't trust the church to act wisely with that money. Well, then get out of that church. Church finances are to be handed, handled carefully, scrupulously, and openly. A church that fails to produce accounts or doesn't have a treasure is failing in terms of its biblical requirement. I heard of one church recently, and the minister says, um, I, boasting, I, I don't take a salary. I just take whatever goes under the box. And no accounts are ever produced, and he handles that money himself. That's shameful. The treasure that's appointed must have the full confidence of the church membership and the deacons who oversee the expenditure. They must be spiritual and trusted men. The pastor should never be put in a position where he has to handle money directly. This is one area that so many churches feel in, in not being scrupulous in their handling of money. I was very encouraged uh, on Friday night. I went into the church and we're talking about the offering for the ladies yesterday morning and how um, it was uh, going to be retrieved before the offering this morning so it wouldn't get mixed up. And uh, Brian said to me, I said, who empties the boxes? And he says, well, I don't empty them on my own. There's always two people there, two people to count. Sensible. That's biblical. I remember agreeing to support a friend of mine who was going to the mission field, and I, I maybe it was a bit of an upstart, but I, I, I wrote to the, the mission society and asked how much they spend in administration. And I got a very nasty letter back telling me it was none of my business, only to discover later that 56% of the support that I was giving to this individual was going on administration. The finances of the church are to be handled with the utmost care by respected and trusted men. The method of giving. We are to give individually, regularly, proportionately, centrally, carefully. The reason for giving 
the method of giving, our motive in giving. Why should I give at all? Why should I bother? What is my motive? What is my, should my motive be in giving? Well, look again at verse 2. On the first day of the week. The first day of the week was the day of worship for the church. The early church met on the first day of the week in commemoration of the resurrection. It was the day that the Holy Spirit came upon the church at Pentecost. John speaks in Revelation of being in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So the first day had a special significance for the early church. It was their day of worship. It was the Christian Sabbath. Now, it seems to me that Paul, in telling the Christians to bring their collection on the first day of the week, is indicating that giving uh, the offering was part, an integral part, of the worship service. You see that in Philippians 4 and verse 18, where Paul describes the support that he had received from the Philippian church. And he says, I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied. Now I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. So the Philippian church sent gifts um, to, to Paul. And he says this, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. Here Paul likens this practical support, the practical support of the Philippians to a fragrant offering of the Old Testament, an acceptable sacrifice in the Old Testament, pleasing to God. You remember the smoke from that sacrifice was a sweet-smelling savor to God. It pleased him. Paul saw that offering as an integral part of worship, as an expression of thanks to God. It's tragic when Christians generally, and church members in particular, see giving as a duty. It's worship, it's praise, it's thanksgiving. It's worshiping God, not just with your lips, but with your heart and your hand. When we went to Balamani, everything was up for grabs because it was a church plant, and we had to decide everything. And one of the things that we had to decide was whether to put a box at the back for the offering or to pass round a plate. And uh, there was great debate about this and the church didn't want to give the impression uh, that um, that you were paying for the gospel or praying for the preaching of, of the word of God. The point I was trying to make was that, although I, I lost this uh, argument, in the church, the point I was trying to make is that the plate is part of worship. It's an integral part of worship. You're worshiping God in your tithes and offerings. Well, I think in this church we pass around the plate normally, um, pre-COVID days in the morning, and we have the box at night. And I think that stems from when you had the the strong gospel service at night. You didn't want to give people the impression that they were paying for the gospel, unbelievers. I mean, I think things have changed and the culture has changed too and, uh, and the gospel needs to be preached at every service because you're, you're not sure that uh, who's out and who's not out. But that's by the way. Now sometimes people sort of get a bit uh, anxious about making this connection between worship and, and thanks and the offering. Just turn over with me to Second Corinthians for a moment, chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You should read 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 8 and 9 because Paul gives a, a great um, defense of giving uh, in that. 
But uh, he says in verse 7, But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. This is giving. I say this not as a command, but to move, to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So Paul is encouraging these believers to give. And he says, remember the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You excel in the grace of giving. Because as you remember the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. We know the poverty our Lord experienced, born in a borrowed uh, uh, stable, led in a borrowed manger, riding upon a borrowed donkey, um, led in a borrowed tomb. His life was a life of poverty. And for your sakes he became poor, not least of all the poverty of the cross. When he went to the cross and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He gave up everything for us. He laid down his life for us. He, he experienced the desolation of the cross for us. So that we might become rich, that we might become his children, that we might be, receive his spirit, that we might have a, a home in heaven, that we might know the forgiveness of sins. See that like him, you excel in the grace of giving. That were the whole realm of nature mine. That would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so de divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We are to worship him in response to his love for us. We are to praise him through our offering. To worship in that way is your offering an expression of the indebtedness that you experience in the light of the grace of God to your darkened soul. See, says Paul, that you excel in the grace of giving. The reason for giving, obedience and fellowship, the method of giving, you are to give individually, regularly, proportionately, centrally, carefully, and the motive for giving. Giving is part of our worship. Amen.